All right, let's take our Bibles. Turn to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. We will be picking up in verse 11, 12, verse 12. Last week we, uh, we got through verses 9, 10, and 11, looking at this chapter that is further outlining the nature of God's judgment that's going to come upon Israel. Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end." says the Lord. There was an armed robber by the name of Dennis Lee Curtis. It's possible you've heard this that I'm about to share with you before. It's been, it, it floats around, pastors use it often, though I don't recall if I have or not. Dennis Lee Curtis was arrested in 1992 in Rapid City, South Dakota. And among his things in his wallet, they found a sheet of paper. The police did. It seems that Mr. Curtis had a code of ethics. Here were the principles that he lived by. I will not kill anyone unless I have to. I will take cash and food stamps... No checks. I will rob only at night. I will not wear a mask, which is odd. I will not rob many marts or 7-Eleven stores, which also seems like an odd specific location. If I get chased by cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by vehicle, I'll not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. I will rob only seven months out of the year. Everybody needs a break. I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Of course, Dennis Lee Curtis was arrested. He was tried. He was convicted. And he was put in jail, in spite of the fact that he had these rules he lived by. 
I mean, at the end of the day, it didn't matter that he had scruples about the way he engaged in his criminal behavior. It was still a violation of the law. And so no matter what system of right and wrong he set up, what he did was wrong, and he had to pay the consequences for it. You know, that, that's kind of an extreme example, but, but I, I, think, I think Mr. Curtis is a pretty good example here, uh, may, maybe even a bit of a model. Again, maybe not so extreme, but, but I think there are a lot of people, perhaps even a vast majority of people, who develop their own list of right and wrong. They're under the misguided impression that they get to decide those things and that if they have some kind of right that seems to uphold some kind of standard of morality in their minds, then that kind of rubs out the wrong that they're doing, right? I think people want to establish for themselves various standards of right and wrong, not so much because they want to do what's right, but because they want to do what's wrong. This is kind of human nature. It's kind of always been this way, right? That we feel like we can design for ourselves what it looks like to be, and we could use the term somewhat generically, what it looks like to be faithful or moral or obedient or righteous or what it means to be a, a, a good person. But this, this is what humans have always done. We've kind of always assumed we can establish our own standards. And then when someone would dare to hold a higher standard to us, we get offended, right? They think that they are. I think Israel is in this place. This is exactly what Israel has done. Israel has allowed herself to believe that because she's a covenant people, because they, they have the law, and because they're doing some of the elements of ritual, though they're not doing it in the way God prescribed, nonetheless, that they are doing some of it, plus at the end of the day, they're God's people. So, surely they're not going to face the wrath of God. Surely God's judgment is something that'll come upon the Philistines, right? The Egyptians, oh yeah. Edomites, you bet. God's going to fry them up. Maybe even Judah. Yeah, they deserve a spanking every now and then as well. But Israel, I don't think so. They developed in their mind. They'd established for themselves this sense of right and wrong and felt very justified in the lives that they had been living. And so that, that's, why, that's why Amos' message is, is so, should be, so disturbing to them, and undoubtedly was, not only because of the source coming from a guy like Amos, you know, as we've talked about, farmer, fresh off the farm, uh, from living in the middle of nowhere, and comes to the places of power and influence and authority in, in Israel, and begins to, as the phrase goes, speaks truth to power, and the truth is a hard truth. And the truth is that they are God's people, but they will face God's judgment. They do not, even as God's people, get to decide their own standard of right and wrong. Nor do they get to lay before God the defense, well, we did some of this stuff. It's not sufficient. So, so Amos' words are important. It lays out this case against Israel and the judgment to come. And what we've been looking at specifically in chapter 3 
is a description then of, of the judgment to come. So Amos 3 lays out the nature of God's judgment that is about to be poured out on the people in spite of the fact that they are God's people. And you know, as a result, they do enjoy a unique relationship with God. But I would contend, and we'll see this, we'll kind of maybe tie this back in as we get to the end of this tonight, I would contend there is a very special kind of chastisement that comes upon the people of God because they are the people of God. Not only do they not escape the hand of God's chastisement, just by being the people of God, by being the people of God, God's promised them a unique expression of chastisement. It's embedded in the law itself. The book of Deuteronomy is not unclear. Very, very clearly establishes. Here's the path to blessing. Here's the path to cursing. And there's no doubt Israel chose the path that would result in God's heavy hand being upon them. So, what is the nature of God's judgment? Well, again, this is what we've been looking at. So, the first eight verses, we, we looked at the description of judgment. And then last week, we looked at the witnesses to judgment, verses 9 through 11, identified two in particular. The Egyptians and the Philistines are called on by God to come to the mountaintop and to observe two things that are going to go on in Israel. One, to observe their depravity, see the degree to which they've engaged in sin. So, he calls on some pretty good witnesses to do it. If anybody knows what wickedness and depravity looks like, It's the Egyptians and the Philistines. To think that God calls on pagan nations to give testimony to the depravity of His people. I mean, that is is the the ultimate offense, in essence, to Israel. But then God's also calling on Egypt and the Philistines to give witness to the judgment to come. Both of whom, by the way, know something about God's judgment. Both of whom have experienced God's judgment themselves, though it did not really change them all that much. Nonetheless, they they did experience it. And so, we noted then that feature there of God's judgment being witnessed to. And and as we left last week, we we ended with the principal point. I think this is an important one. You know, God never judges in secret. I I don't find one example in the Bible where God judges in secret. God's judgment and this would be the way to put it, God's judgments are always revelatory. Isn't that a good word, right? They, they always reveal something about Himself. So, so God's judgment is never privatized, individualized, just for me, and, and that really strikes at the heart of the whole misguided notion of modern Christianity that my faith is my own personal privatized faith, which is just silly. There's nothing in the Bible that really speaks of it that way. I'm not saying you don't have a personal private faith. I just mean that's not the sum total of your walk with the Lord. Your walk with the Lord involves a very real public corporate walk as well. God has made it clear. His judgments come with a message, not just to the one being judged or chastised, but to others. There are others who will witness it. And so God's judgment never comes in private or in secret. It's always made known. This, by the way, is is consistent with what Amos has already said at the very end of the passage we looked at for several weeks, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. So God, God makes sure that there are witnesses to it. All right, let's go on to number 3. 
And that is, and again, this is on your notes, though there's not blanks to fill in. And this would be the limits of judgment. This is an interesting feature, the limits to judgment. I, I do think it's important that we appreciate that if God does not restrain Himself in judgment, the entirety of the earth would get scorched, right? Every judgment we see in the Bible has got some limit to it because He leaves some people around. And and we, we should appreciate that any judgment that God unleashes, especially what we find in the Old Testament... Uh, it would have been justified to unleash on every people group on the planet. Not, I mean, not just his own people. I mean, any, any people group. So we do see an interesting statement here about how God limits, or, or at least the degree to which he brings his judgment to an end. It's a strong judgment, and we'll look at it for the last point. It's a deep and profound kind of judgment, but it does stop short of obliterating his people. Look again at verse 12. He uses a really graphic illustration to say this. Thus says the Lord, As a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria. I I mean, I, I don't know that that metaphor needs to be unpacked, but we will for just a minute, all right? So you're a shepherd... And you come upon a lion munching down on one of your pretty little lambs. And the only thing that's left, I mean, it's graphic, right? The only thing that's left are a couple of, uh, we, we have a couple of legs here and a, and a piece of an ear. So, I, I mean, you can use your own imagination unless you just don't want to. But this is a fairly graphic image, is it not? This isn't like he came upon pieces of a lamb already, the lion did. No, the lion has been chowing down. And the lion has consumed the majority of it, and what's left in the shepherd's arms is nothing nothing but two legs and an ear. So this this is a pretty graphic image of of parts remaining. And and so so the prophet then says, so this is the, the nature of this judgment to come. So shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria. So what he's reminding us of, and we know this is going to happen, the Assyrians are going to, to march on the northern kingdom. They're going to invade Israel. And along with destruction and what you may imagine would accompany some kind of an invasion like that, they are gonna, they're going to take exiles. They're going to take captives, just like the Babylonians do, and then they're going to scatter a bunch of them. And, and this, is, this is going to be known as the dispersion, at least in, in this period of time, when that judgment actually comes. And so there, there are going to be... And they, they, they say that for large measure, a number of the ten tribes that reside in northern, the northern kingdom of Israel... Then, then are really going to lose a lot of their genealogical information. It's going to happen as a result of this. Uh, and you, you may hear talk some about the lost tribes, that kind of language. So, so it goes way back and to, to this moment. So they're going to be scattered. But what God is saying here is some of them are going to remain. Yeah, a lot of them are going to be devoured. There's going to be some who will remain. It's, it's going to be kind of like, and he, he gives them another image, not quite as graphic, 
It says, in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. Right, so, so you don't have a whole couch, you just have a little bit of piece of a couch. You're, you're not getting the whole bed, you're just getting a little sliver of the bed. Some of you are thinking, that's how I sleep every night. All right, so, so, so you're just getting, if you have a bed hog, all right, so you're, I'm just getting a little bit here. And so what he's saying is, there's just going to be a bit reserved. God is not going to decimate his people. There will be a remnant left over. Now, I, I don't want to be um, confusing using the word remnant. Sometimes in the, prof, in the prophets, the reference to a remnant is a reference to faithful men and women, that God has a remnant. He has a small group who remain faithful to Him. There's nothing in this text that suggests to me that the, group, that the two legs and ear are representing faithful Israel, faithful men and women who are living in Israel. I don't see that. Instead, I think it's just saying there will be some who will be left. They'll be left in Samaria. They'll remain there. God, God, God is not, it's not going to be a sweeping judgment that removes them all. There will be some who will remain. So God does limit His judgment here. That, that, that doesn't mean it's not severe. But again, it is going to be limited. Now, why would He do that? Why, why would these few remain? Well, I think there could be a couple of reasons for this. I, I, I think one, you know, the, the promises related to His people and the Messiah to come have not yet been fulfilled. There, there needs to remain those who will be in the land, though He's going to bring some back, right? He's going to bring exiles back. You may recognize that story. Please tell me you recognize that story. Okay. Huh. Good. So he's gonna, he will bring some back, but we know that story. You know, Ezra is located in the southern part of the kingdom, uh, and we'll bring this up. Actually, what's interesting, though, about Ezra is Ezra does not refer to the exiles of Judah and Benjamin coming back. He refers to them as the tribes of Israel. So it's, it's interesting that we see when we get back from exile, so post-Babylon, so the stories of you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, the last books of Old Testament history period, um, we do see a reunified nation. So there were people who remained, and I think that was just an important part, that there, God had made a promise that there would be His people occupying His land, and, and though it was in a different form, His people remained. But I would suggest there's even another reason. Just as he called Egypt and Philistia to be witnesses, these who remain are witnesses to the judgment of God. They give testimony to these things. They would be there for whatever other people group may come in, even when the people of God might try and come back, you know, after there's this regathering. Perhaps they would be giving testimony to their children and their grandchildren and passing it along into subsequent generations. Here's what happens when you violate God's covenant. At least that's ideally how they should function, that God would leave witnesses behind, a limit to His judgment. By the way, you see this in God's other judgments in the Bible. The flood. You might say, Pastor, that doesn't seem very limited. Well, Ask Noah and his family. All right, so there was a limit to it. He did not destroy everybody. Plus, what did God say afterwards? I'll never do that again. Not like that. I'll never destroy the earth again with the flood. He promised that. He said that would, I would never do it like that again. 
What about Sodom and Gomorrah? You say, well, he didn't leave any of Sodom and Gomorrah left. Do you think Sodom and Gomorrah were these outlying cities and the only ones doing the things they were doing? Of course not. There were all kinds of cities on that plain that would have been known for the same kinds of sin. God, God, yes, he thoroughly judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but there, there was a limit. Plus, he allowed Lot and his family to escape, right? How about Egypt? I don't know, Pastor, that seems pretty severe to me. Is there still an Egypt today? Yes, <laughs> yes. God's grace in Egypt was that there were only ten plagues. Because had there been more, there would have been nothing left, Right? So, so we, we see this. We see God doing this. In fact, we've even talked about it on Sunday nights. There's the statements related to the end times judgment that even says, had God not limited the time, it would have consumed even the elect. Mm. So we do see this as a way God works. God does limit His judgment. And, and again, I, I, I would say, as, as a as a way to, to leave a witness, as a way really to, oddly enough, as a way to express grace. And we'll actually see that here in just a moment. So the limits to judgment. Number four, and finally, for this chapter and this message, the depth of judgment. So I, I want to go from one to the other. So there was limit to it, but let's, let's note, though, he concludes here by, by really taking us to just, just how deep the judgment goes. Verse 13, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So, so now, now Amos is going to give us two specific aspects of God's judgment. We've already heard God's indictment against their violence, uh, against their oppression, against their injustice. We've heard that. More of that will come up in the book. But now God gets really specific here with them. And He says, so in the day that I judge, part of my punishment, you just need to know, it's not just some kind of you know, randomized tantrum that God is having. This is directed and specific, and what it's directed toward, partly, is their idolatry. It's at least in part. So, so he says, what, one of the things I'm going to do, I'm going to destroy the altars of Bethel. I'm going to tear the, the horns of the altar down to the ground. Now you might say, oh, what? I mean, what, what's the big deal? Why would, why would God do that? So there's two problems. Number one, this isn't in your notes. I mean, I guess you could write this down. It's not in your notes or it's not going to be behind me. So you just have to write it all down. Number one, there shouldn't be an altar there in the first place. Problem number one. They had no business building an altar. See, God had prescribed in His law the way this should work. And the altar was to be located in the temple in Jerusalem. That was the law. And and in order to take advantage of it, you were going to have to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, 
and utilize the services available to you there. That's how this thing worked. Of course, we know the northern kingdom had a rivalry with the southern kingdom, right? This, this, this was a, a bitter relationship. Uh, neither group wanted to interact with one another. Uh, so the, the folks in the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, they, they were not going to go to Jerusalem and to the temple. And so what did they do? They built their own altar. So there shouldn't be one there in the first place. This is a violation of God's law. Which, that, you know, this kind of subject's always a good one to me. It's just always a good reminder to us. It's a good reminder to me. I, I, I don't get to tell God what's good enough for worship. I don't get to decide it. And I can tell you right now, something God does not care about is whether or not worship is convenient for you. He does not care. It's, it's, not, it's not on his list of things. I want to make sure it's easy for them. Oh, they, they don't want to go to Jerusalem? Okay, well, they can build their own altar. It's not how it works. <laughs> no, God gets to decide what worship is, what God-glorifying worship is. He gets to decide how it's done, where it should be done, when it should be done. So th- this is a problem right to begin with, that they have built an altar. They shouldn't have built an altar. They thought they could do it. And, and I, I have every reason to believe they did the best they could in building the altar. In fact, I have every reason to believe they're, they're offering some of the sacrifices the way they should. Now, this is part problem number two. So not only should there not have been an altar, but number two, they were intermingling sacrifices related to the law with pagan forms of worship. So there shouldn't have been an altar there in the first place, but the altar they built, they were using it wrong. They were were offering false worship on it, so they kind of doubled down. And and so God is warning them here that part of the judgment to come is God, God is going to direct His judgment at their false forms of worship, at their idolatry. I assume I don't have to really argue for God-hating idolatry. Anybody here disagree with that? <laughs> Anybody think, no, I don't think the Bible says that. Uh, no, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward, right? God's hate, and I use that word intentionally, right? It's, it's in spite of the, you know, the parent coming out and saying, don't use hate, all right? Hate's a strong word. It is, but God hates it. God hates idolatry. I, I'm I mean, we're talking about a God who told Moses to grind up an idol into dust and make the people drink it. It's pretty serious. That's what they did, right? When they got caught with the golden calf, they ground it to dust and they put it in the water and they made them drink it. God hates idolatry. He even begins His commandments with it. Don't have any other gods before me. Do not make a graven image. Some of the harshest words directed at people. Some of the, some of the sternest warnings are related to idolatry. Some of the harshest judgments come as a result of idolatry. Now, before you think, oh, that's okay, yeah, that's an Old Testament thing. The New Testament's full of warnings against idolatry. To, to me, one of the most interesting ones, we get to the end of the New Testament era, Around 90 A.D. or so, the Apostle John, the only living apostle, he's old, and he's writing a letter 
1 John, where he's encouraging all kinds of things, right? He's, he's, he's talking about the assurance of salvation. He's talking about joy in your salvation. He's talking about uh, how to be obedient and faithful, what it means to love God, what it means to love your brother. I mean, all of these great statements and deep and weighty and profound, and, and we identify with them almost immediately as the church, even 2,000 years later. But the very last sentence, this is how he ends the whole thing. The whole thing ends with this phrase, little children, keep yourselves from idols, amen. That's a strange ending. He had not said one word about idols (laughs) until he gets to the very end. And the last words ringing in the ear that you would have heard from John's letter, had you been in the church and that letter was read by the pastor, the elder of the church, and and you, you would have heard all these other, you know, commands and admonitions, and then he gets to the end, keep yourself from idols. Amen. God hates idolatry. Do not underestimate God's willingness to use extreme measures to deal with idolatry in the lives of His people, in the lives of His 21st century people, 21st century New Bernian people. Do not think you don't have a problem with idolatry. Your pastor should not think he's free from problems of idolatry. I mean, I, mean I, don't, I don't have little statues. I don't have an altar that I've physically built that has horns on it. But we sometimes have altars that we have no business building. And we sometimes offer sacrifices that we have no business offering. And we sometimes do it in a way that very clearly says to God there's a divided allegiance. That there's something else or even someone else that garners a greater love than he does. So this is, a, this is a very real thing. We should be very mindful of the dangers of those things which would rob God of our affection. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn that down. But then notice the other thing he does. He's, all, he's also going to go after another kind of idol of sorts. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. He's going to go after their greed. He's he's, he's going to go after their opulence. He's going to go after the way they've indulged themselves, materially speaking. Now, it's important to note, he's he's not chastising them for wealth per se. He has already chastised them for their greed and, put, and their violence in amassing what they've amassed. And we've already seen this in Amos. He, he goes after them because they step on the necks of the poor in order to benefit themselves. And he's already chastised them for this. And so now he's coming back and filling that in. And he's, he's making sure they know. So the, the ways in which you have built luxury for yourselves as a result of your greed, your violence, I'm going to tear it all down. All this is going to be removed from you. And so that's what he means when he talks about having a summer house and a winter house. I mean, this smacks of royalty, right? Well, especially back in this day. I mean, those who had, who had a summer house and a winter house, I mean, you're, you're talking about those at the, the, the very highest levels. And then being able to use ivory as an adornment. So the great houses, all of these things shall have an end. So God warns them here of the depth of judgment that, that is to come. So, you know, chapter 3 is like a lot of chapters we've run across in the prophets. I mean, it's, 
once you kind of unpack it a little bit and, and meditate upon it and think through its implications, it's heavy. But I think it's good, though, that we would conclude this by reminding ourselves of God's purposes in it when it comes to His people. This is God sanctifying His people. Again, He's not doing this because He's throwing a tantrum. He's he's not flying off the handle here. This this is not God saying, I'm going to count to five, right? The way we might parent, all right? That's not what God's doing here. This, this This is not God reacting in some kind of anger where He says, and He's blowing His top. God is doing this because He wants a people holy and unto Himself, devoted, free from that which would corrupt them, free from idolatry, free from greed, free from violence, free from oppression. He wants a people who will be true to the covenant. He wants a redeemed people, a sanctified people. And so He's willing to use extreme measures to sanctify them. That's what this is. This is not God giving up. This is God continuing to keep His promises. And this is, this is, this is God removing from them the, the idolatry that's among them. And, and as we've pointed this out before in the prophets, but I think it's, you know, it's a good thing then to, to remember. Of all the things Jesus fussed at the Jewish leadership for in the New Testament, Did he ever fuss at them for idolatry like this? Not once. Not once. This was never a subject that comes up. He never... Now, he does challenge them for how they approach worship, all right? He's not saying their worship is good, but what what I find fascinating, by by the time we get to the New Testament, there's for sure one thing that is is no longer tempting them. In, In other words, the Jews are not being lured away by the Roman or Greek gods. This is what was always happening to them previously, right? The Canaanite gods were constantly wooing them, and they were constantly responding. So we see God doing this work as a way, as a way of sanctifying them, making them holy. We all know, if we were to go around the room and I were to say, what are some of the best lessons you've ever learned? My guess is every single one of us, at least part of that testimony, will be a lesson learned that comes out of pain. Anybody here ever learned a really good lesson because you made a really dumb decision? Right? Yes. I'm not not encouraging us to do that. I I just mean sometimes learning, what, what is the phrase they use? That's the school of hard knocks, right? It's a very effective university and it's got all the most graduates ever, all right, in the world Number one school that everybody's graduated from is the school of hard knocks. There, there are sometimes there are lessons that you realize to take, take hard measures. And if you think about it like, like a disease, there are certain diseases of the body that require extreme measures to get rid of. And we think of like a cancer that requires radiation, chemotherapy. Extreme actions are called on to remove that which could be so deadly God will treat sin this way. And this is what He's doing. God is once a holy people, devoted unto Him. A nation that loves Him and serves Him. And so, this, this judgment has a redemptive end. 
So even though the prophets aren't always good news, even though they aren't a lot of fun, we do need to keep that ultimate goal of God in mind as we continue our study in it. All right, let's pray together. Father God, thank you again for gathering your people tonight, for being able to spend time in prayer with brothers and sisters in Christ and spend time in your word. We do thank you for this word. We thank you for the way that you intervene in our lives. You bless us, you bestow grace upon us, and you correct us. We are grateful, God, that you are patient. We are grateful, God, that you also are willing to do what needs to be done that our sin might be dealt with. I thank you for these who are here tonight. I pray, God, that they would know your hand leading and guiding them through the rest of this week. I pray that you'd grant them wisdom for whatever decisions you would call upon them to make. For, for, for wherever they are in life and the roles and responsibilities given to them, that they would, they would do it in faith and in a way that glorifies and honors you. And then we ask that you'd gather your people back together again, that as your church, we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.